0: Okay, here we go. July the twenty-second, two thousand twelve, uh, lecture discussion number seventy-five on the Book of Romans, and that's where we're supposed to be. Is the Book of Romans, and we've actually barely made it to the Joel two, Revelation six seven portion of the Acts two segment of the Exodus twenty twenty-one piece of the great therefore of Romans five one through three. And if you understood that sentence, then I've done my job, and I can quit. Let me repeat it again. We've made it to the Joel two, Revelation six seven portion of the Acts two segment of the Exodus twenty twenty one piece of the great therefore of Romans five one through three. Again, I'm pleased to report that many have worked their way through the process, and they've got most of that figured out. I was really thrilled last week with some of you. Much progress is being made, though I must report as well uh, that the inverse is also true. Many have no idea what I'm talking about. And I used to take it personally, but I don't. That's a static condition here at beautiful downtown Cliffinside. Our Cliff and Stein, as it's often called, and, and yes, that's a T-shirt. Uh, here's where I mentioned Peter from Australia. Peter, I told the group uh, about the cookies; they're all happy. I told them about the uh, the chicken uh, next week, and they're all happy about that. And, and most of them want to know, Pete, uh, how come you didn't send the chicken itself? We we would have wanted that too, and it would have been very funny. And I need all the comedy I can get. So we're grateful, sir, for your uh, for your uh, chicken and, uh, and cookies, and you're now by far the favorite of all the people who write or send us stuff. Uh, you're way ahead of Jennifer and Sharon and all the rest of them. So uh, congratulations for being at the top of whatever that is. Anyway, if while you've been reading Romans 5, 1 through 3, you notice we have peace with God. See, that's key. When you're in Romans 5, you see uh, 1 through 3, you see we have peace with God. And, and no one really takes the time to understand what that is and what that means. We have peace with God, which means that what? Prior to that, we were what? We were enemies of God. Sworn, decided, free will choosers to be enemies of God. And now we have peace with God. And you can recognize that peace immediately takes you, I hope you know, I hope you will go right to Exodus 20 and 21, where I have the law of God, which explains that we're enemies, and then the law of the altar, which explains... The peace treaty. You see, that's where the peace treaty is. So when you read five one through three, you go to the peace treaty. We're no longer enemies because we're at peace, because somebody signed a peace treaty and fulfilled the requirements of it. Hopefully you realize that it's an unconditional surrender. You will sooner or later. But you get that peace issue figured out with the law of the altar connection. That's how you get from Romans five one to Exodus twenty twenty one. You go from Exodus twenty twenty one, where do you go? Once you're at Exodus twenty twenty one, where is the next place you have to go every single time? If you don't go there, beatings will follow. Where do you have to go? Come on. Acts two. That's right. Joel 2 is in Acts 2, but you have to go to Acts 2. Otherwise, you're lost already. Okay? Exodus 20, 24, the law of the altar, backs us up to the law of God. Okay? The law of God is God Himself, or the Ten Commandments, God Himself coming with His host And he's being seen and he's being heard by his nation of Israel. And he has these four signs. Now, he has more than four, but these four are always there. The smoke, the fire, the thunderings. And then the thunderings, as you know, means speaking voice or languages. So he has the smoke, the fire, the thunderings, and the trumpet. That's what he's got. And those are being seen and being heard by the whole nation of Israel. And he brought his angelic host, and so he reveals the spiritual reality to the physical reality. In other words, we're in the physical reality, and he reveals the ultimate reality to us, or in that case, to the nation of Israel, so the heavenly host... This incredible spiritual reality is shown to the wife of God or the nation of Israel. And he did it 50 days from the time that they crossed the Red Sea on the feast day of firstfruits. That's when he did this. And now here we are on the fourth feast day of the seven feast days. And that's the feast, days, feast day of weeks. And we are at Mount Sinai. And if you've got that and realize that Acts 2 then is the second time he does it. The first time is here at Exodus. The second time is at Acts 2. If you realize that Acts 2 is the natural progression from Exodus 20, then you're in great shape. But you have to know that Acts 2 is just the second time. You ought to know when, when what? When's the third time? Because I got a third time. He does everything that he does. Three times. The third time is Revelation 6, 7, and 8, but mostly Revelation 6. If you've got that, if you know we have to go to the peace treaty, which is the law of the altar, we have to have a law of the altar because we have the law of God and we're enemies. It happened in Mount Sinai on the feast day of first fruits, and we have these four signs, and that occurs again at Acts 2. And then it occurs again at Revelation 6, 7, and 8. Okay? Then you will understand Acts 2. You won't make a mistake when you read it. You won't think something is there that's not there. Acts 2 occurs on the feast day of weeks, 50 days from the resurrection of Christ on the feast day of first fruits. Absent that knowledge, any interpretation of Acts 2 will and does fall into error, end of story, no exceptions. That hurts people's feelings, and I know that, and I feel bad for them. Not for very long, because my job is to tell them the truth. If I do my job, then I won't get my beating. You'll get yours, I'll get mine, I will will reduce some of it by doing my job. Now the obvious questions must must be dealt with especially the most obvious of the obvious questions. And I got a problem as you know it's really difficult to do what I do. Why is that? Because we think 52 degrees and raining 52 degrees fahrenheit I have to do that now because of why. That's right we love Peter the most. Peter is buying us chicken. And so we're going to do everything we can to endear ourselves to him. Cookies and chicken. Can it get better than cookies and chicken? It can't from Australia. Goodness sakes. We think 52 degrees Fahrenheit, as opposed to centigrade here in Anchorage, is summer. And we're so gripped by desperation, people are here, to do something, anything that might be classified as fun, even has a hint of fun to it. Anything that we can even barely call fun. And as you know, people will stand for hours being swarmed by flesh-eating bot flies to catch an edible rotten fish, which I've always found fascinating behavior. Costing a mere $500, right? Gas, licensing, broken gear, medical expenses. But it might, it might be fun, and I'll give you that. It's possible. It, it used to be fun for me when I was much younger and stupid. But it's not fun for me anymore. Uh, But I'll give it. It's possible. Oh, thank you very much. Terry does not like to see me bend over to get the medicine. She thinks that I will pass out, which is likely as I get older. My point, and yes, I have a point, is that so much of the regulars are irregular. No, so much of the regulars are 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 missing to the place where we're almost an alternating congregation now. One half of you comes on one Sunday, the other half comes on the next Sunday, and so I'm almost operating two separate classes, and that's problematic, and and I know it, I've been doing it for years, but it's really difficult with this subject, because you have to put the pieces together. If you miss a piece, and you don't know the pieces there, Then you get lost. And so I've got to deal with this in a way where I make sure all of you have got all the pieces. That means the ones that came two successive Sundays but slept through most of both. i got to get these pieces buried into you. I have to, and I know I do. I know how important it is to your life. I don't want you to be fooled. I don't want you to be conned. I just can't stand it. I know how destructive the con game is, and I know how good at, at it they are. And so I've got to help you get through it. All you have to do is be suspicious, I told Annabelle today. I said, don't disregard your instinct to be suspicious of people. Be suspicious. Question their motives. Question their doctrine. Question their, their processes. So I feel this great pressure as it is to repeat in order to ensure the comprehension. And that pressure is worsened by the Alaskan absentee syndrome. All of that, once again, to say, I have to regurgitate stuff. Here's the official Cliffside sermon disclaimer. Today's lecture, without the previous three, will be enigmatic for you. And if you have a view or a position... On Acts 2, and this goes for the internet, and I know what I'm doing, because they're they're letting me know. Some will buy us chicken, others will hang a chicken around my neck. If you have a view or a position on Acts 2 that is lacking or is wanting the following elements, it does not have Exodus 20 and 21 prominent, it does not have Joel 2 prominent, it does not have uh, Psalm 16 prominent. It does not have Revelation 6 and 7 and 8 prominent. It does not connect to Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel. It does not connect to Genesis 15, which is the smoking furnace and the burning lamp. It does not connect to Exodus 32, which is the golden cat. You have a position on Acts 2. Without those, your position stinks. And I say it ain't better than that. I want you to go see Lori Jane, also known as Jane Laurie, also name, known as J-Lo, and get the CD, CD Lectures 72, 73, and 74. Yes, that was funny. Thank you for laughing. If you'll do that, and you'll listen to them, and those of you on the internet, if you'll back up and hear all of them, and don't skip around, and you get all the pieces, I believe you'll be shocked at uh, what you may have believed in the past and the lack of defensibility that it had. Okay? The obvious questions and the most obvious questions. Here, we we'll, we got lots of lists to do. I'm going to be writing lists all day long. Number one list. Number one thing. What does the golden calf have to do with this? What does the golden calf have to do with Acts 2? Again, if you have an Acts 2 position and you haven't wrestled through the golden calf, you're in trouble. Where, I'm sorry, were there golden cappers at both Exodus 20 and Exodus 32 and Acts 2? Yes. Why were 3,000 golden caffers slain at Exodus 32 and 3,000 golden caffers saved at Acts 2? What is the connection? By the way, did all 6,000 know they were golden caffers? I'm calling them golden caffers just to be funny. Did they all know what they were? Did they all know they were going out to be golden caffers? Who are the golden caffers? And didn't you recognize, I hope you do, the Old Testament prophecy is in Exodus thirty two, where three thousand golden kaffirs are slain. That's a prophecy. Where is the New Testament fulfillment of the three thousand slain? It's where? Acts two, where three thousand are saved. That's central to understanding this chapter or this passage in Scripture. Okay? So there's your golden calf questions. Genesis notice I gave you 3 A B and C that was a whole bunch of golden stuff D Genesis 15 critical information because it solves the meaning or it provides the meaning of the smoke and the fire I now know what the smoke means and I know what the fire means because it is told to me in Genesis 15 when the smoke and the fire go through the pieces of the animals. That is the collision, if you will. But now I have a problem because I need to know what are the, what is the meaning of the thunderings or the voice of God or the speaking or the voices or the Languages, The thunderings, all of that's in thunderings. What's the meaning of that? And what's the meaning of the trumpet? What does the trumpet mean? Why are those the four signs? Here I get it. Here I got judgment. Here I have love and mercy. Or holiness and justice and love and mercy. Here I have languages. What does that mean? Why am I doing this reversal of Genesis 11? What are the trumpets all about? Trumpets gather people. Why? Why not use a drum? Hey, E. How many angels play the trumpet? I got Revelation 8.1 where I got seven of them. So I know I got more than one in the trumpet section. Here's a better question. How many saw and heard God's trumpet section at Exodus 20? How loud was the trumpet session? It was really loud. That's easy. He hurts people with the trumpet. He makes them afraid, which is still today my dream as a trumpet player, to make people cry and hurt and run from the building. So far, I've been very effective. Thank you for laughing, Jennifer. How many in the nation of Israel, of which I had two and a half million of them, how many of them heard and saw the trumpet players and, and heard the trumpet music or whatever sound it was? don't know that you could call it music. That's what they say about me. But definitely it was loud. Definitely it was painful. So much I have in common. So then, when you read in Acts 2.33... Where it says, this is which you now see and hear. What exactly did everybody see and hear in Acts 2? Because they saw and heard in Exodus 20. And what was poured out? What does pour out mean? Why does God suspend Genesis 11? Genesis 11 is where he intervenes to stop the Nimrod from collecting as the information that Nimrod needs in order to accomplish something. Nimrod, as you know, comes out. He's a, a type of the Antichrist. And he is an extraordinarily powerful killer. And he wanted to make sure that he had all the wisdom that man could have, and he built a ziggurat. Not a tower. It's not a tower of Babel. It is... Uh, like the leaning power. What he's trying to do is he's trying to accumulate a tower in the sense of a fortress. So he's made a tower that is impenetrable, that God can't destroy, essentially. That's what his plan A fortification is what that means. A tower of strength, if you will. So he gets all the people of the known world at that time, and he does what with them? He begins to accumulate as much information as he can. Why? Because he knows that if he can get to the spiritual reality again, like they did prior to the flood, he becomes very powerful indeed. He wants the key to making what? Nephilim again. That's what he's doing. And God interferes. God scrambles up the language so they can't communicate, they can't accumulate information, they can't share knowledge, and they can't figure out the problem. But now, at Genesis I'm sorry, at Exodus 20 and at Acts 2, he reverses Genesis 11. He also does it at Revelation 6 and 7. So why does God suspend Genesis 11 on these three times? Exodus 20, Acts 2, Revelation 6, 7. What is God teaching by doing that? Are there other places in Scripture where everyone, everyone, millions and millions of people, as with regard to Exodus 20, and thousands of them with regard to Acts, Acts 2, of hundreds of different languages, where everyone hears in their born language, because you see that's what that's the reversal of Genesis 11. I want you to think about this for a second, as an aside. Christ speaks to all kinds of people, doesn't he? In the Old Testament, New Testament, sorry. all kinds of people. Do all of them speak Hebrew? No. Most of them, hardly, a lot of them do speak Hebrew, but a lot of them don't. Now, remember, this is kind of a silly, trick question. Is God multilingual? Of course he is. What, idiot? Duh. Does God, Christ, whenever he speaks to somebody, does he say, I'm going to speak to you in Hebrew, and I... I'm going to have this guy translate. No. That's not happening. Every time Christ speaks, every time God speaks, whomever hears, hears how? What do they hear? What's Christ speaking? He is speaking the born language of every single person he comes in contact with. Isn't that obvious? That's what he's doing. got to do that. It's only logical that he's doing that. His goodness, by the way, requires that. Consider the character and the goodness of God. Now, I understand parables, but the parables are still in the born language of whomever he's speaking to. If I had, and that proves that in Acts 2, because I have devout Jews from all over the world, every nation it says. None of them, very few of them spoke Hebrew. And Hebrew was spoken to them, and they all heard in their born language. It's very important. Okay? Every time God speaks, we hear it in our born language. That's only right. Because what if we needed a translator? What would be the accusation against God at the throne? Why? Right. I got lost in the translation. Try that. Is that what your attorney's going to do? Not going to happen. Because he makes sure you hear in your born language. Now, number eight. What is the difference between the two witnesses and the 144,000? I have two witnesses... What is the difference between them? Uh, G was part of F. They're all in there. I just skipped them. Unless I completely forgot G. No, I have G. Uh, never mind. <laughs> Caught again. Ugh. Okay. We're sticking with H. <laughs> G's in there. Trust me, I just labeled F wrong, and then I noticed I've labeled E wrong, and I've labeled D wrong. So I started labeling wrong from the beginning. Okay, where are we now? H. <laughs> what is the difference between the two witnesses and the 144,000? This is uh, this comes from James last week. And James of the second row, son of Kathy of the first row. What is the difference between these two? The 144,000 Jews, see, I have 12 times 12,000. I'll make the case that I had 12 at Acts 2. I know we've got to get to a Paul discussion to do that. I'm more than willing to do it. Come see me afterwards. But I have this 144,000 who are speaking languages that everybody hears in their born language, right? They don't need translators either. They're doing the same thing. Well, what's the difference between them and the two witnesses? Do the two witnesses also speak and everyone hears in their born language? I think they do. So what's the difference between the two? That is what James of the second row, son of Kathy of the first row, wants to know. It's a very good question. And then finally, here's a Jennifer and Peter from Australia's question. What is the significance of Christ? Being the beginning and the end, and being inside of time and outside of time, simultaneously with respect to the meaning of Acts 2. Now, they might not have exactly worded it that way, but that's ultimately where they're going. They want to know about the collection of the Bible. Did God know, did Christ know that when he's speaking, that someday would be Scripture? Did he know that? Of course he knew that. so when he says things, he's saying them inside of time, but he's also saying them outside of time simultaneously. Does that make sense to you? We have to deal with that with regard to Acts 2. Did he know how screwed up we would get Acts 2? Yes. While he's doing Acts 2. He knows. He has to know. And would he take provisions in Scripture to make sure that we could fix it? Of course he would. And he did. Hey. <laughs> yes, there was a, a J in there, uh, but no I. I did not have an I. What, what is the purpose of Joel 2? How does Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, answer the two questions of Acts 2, and I'll repeat the two questions, the two questions are asked by the devout Jews. They ask, whatsoever could this mean after they saw these signs. After they, saw the, they wanted to know the meaning of the signs. They understood what the signs were. They understood what was said to them. They needed to know the meanings. They didn't need translators. They needed somebody to teach them. We need teachers, not translators. The other question is, what shall we do? Once they understood the meaning, what do we do now? Okay? Those are the key questions. Pardon me? Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Joel 2. How does Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110 answer the two questions of Acts 2, which are, whatsoever could this mean, and what shall we do about it, once we understand the meaning? Yes? No, just K. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's Okay.
0: Okay, how do we answer all of these today? (laughs) We don't, that's out. But we start by reading Revelation 6, so that you begin to at least get the third piece of the three-piece situation here, if you will. There's three pieces. Acts 2 is just the second piece. If you don't have the first piece and the third piece, how are you ever going to figure out the second piece? I don't understand why no one ever does it, but they don't do it. And why don't they do it? No money in it, baby. Simple as that. Makes me mad. Okay, let's, uh, read Revelation 6.1. I want to do 6.1 just because you have to see this. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures. He calls them four living creatures. Doesn't call them angels, doesn't call them man, calls them four living creatures, saying with a voice like thunder, there again, thunderings, voice, speaking, languages. Come and see. Wow, that's powerful. Now we'll go to uh, verse twelve. Just know I got four living creatures. They're scary. They're Ezekiel chapter one. How do I why do I bring them up? Whenever God comes, they're coming. They, they hold the throne. They're in the Shekinah glory, if you will. They're in the pillar of cloud. When you see that pillar of cloud, those four creatures, or living creatures, are in there. They hold up the throne. They're terrible. Okay, Revelation six twelve. I looked, and he opened the sixth seal, and behold. Okay, stop. Behold. Something unbelievable is now going to be taught to you. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black, a sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its like figs when it is shaken by a ma- mighty wind then the sky receded as a scroll when it rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place and the kings of the earth the great men the rich men and every man every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains now why is that important because that's what Peter has to talk about where? That's how he explains the four signs of Acts 2 to the devout men. He essentially reads Joel 2, which is Revelation 6, right? Now, I wanted to bring in the four living creatures. i got a new list to make now. It's just as crazy as the old list, so you've got to bear with me. Okay. I wanted to bring up Ezekiel 1, and I probably should read it for you. I know it's going to take a lot more time, and it just it never goes away. I mean, I'm always pressed for time, as you know. Uh, I just deal with it. Let's just do it. Let's go to um, Ezekiel 1, verse 4. Christ always comes with his four living creatures. They're, when he's there, they're with him. They're his armed guard, if you will. He doesn't need guards, but he obviously likes bringing them. And, uh, and you have to recognize that when they came at Mount Sinai, they were seen and they were heard. What was the impact of seeing the four cherubim that are holding up the throne of Christ, the, the ones that are depicted on the Ark of the Covenant? What is it, What would it be like to see one of these living creatures? Okay, 1 verse 4. Then I looked and behold, some incredible information is going to be given to you. Now, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. A great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself and brightness was all around it and radiating out of it. It's mist like the color of amber out of the mist of the fire. And from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. Each one had four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides. And each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward and it goes on burning coals of fire torches fire bright out of the fire goes lightning and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearances like a flash of lightning when the bible talks about those guys you see would you see flash of lightning in exodus did you think it was coming from a cloud it's not the lightning's coming out of what Fire. Did you think it's the same kind of lightning you see out here? It's not. It's the fire that comes and the lightning that comes with the four living creatures. And keep that at the forefront, um, uh, forefront. Imagine seeing the four living creatures and hearing the noise, the thundering sounds, the voices that they make, the the, 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 consider the impact on the nation of Israel. What did they do when God came with the four living creatures, the fire and lightning coming out of it, smoke everywhere, the heavenly host, trumpets blaring like no one is... What did they do? They ran! Because they're smart. We would run too. It's not Charlton Heston and Cecil B. DeMille are the... What is a little cartoon? It's not. Read the facts. Find out what happened. I have voice and thunder and speaking and come and see. Now back to Revelation. I have the sixth seal, right? So go back to Revelation 6. Let's look at it. I might have time to put it on there. But I just want you to see these... He starts Revelation 6 with these four living creatures of Ezekiel 1. Okay? That's very important to know. And their voice, thunderings again, is mentioned. Thunderings is mentioned at Exodus 20, Acts 2, Revelation 6. Thunderings. Not somebody talking softly not what happened at Acts 2, it's not what happened at Exodus 20. It's not what's going to happen at Revelation 6, which is in the tribulation, right? Just before the trumpets. Because I'm on the sixth seal. And then I have this incredible, then I have the, again this this behold, he's going to tell you something that is critically important. For you to understand, you're going to now be able to understand with this behold that's coming. A great truth is given to you. Ask, what is the great truth? I'm going to tell you really fast. It explains Acts 2 and it explains Exodus 20. It is the third one. I got them backwards. First, second, and now the third is happening. That's the behold. The third is here. How many of you saw the first time? None of you. How many of you saw the second time? Nobody saw that either. How many of you are going to see the third time? None of you. But that's what he's doing. What would it be like to see those? Wouldn't that be amazing? Okay. The behold, very important. And now I get these signs. I get an earthquake sign. And he has lots of earthquake signs. He likes earthquake signs. Whenever you say, God give me a sign, be careful. His idea of a sign and your idea of a sign, not the same. I got an earthquake sign, and then I have the sun becomes black sign. Not sun block, sun black. In case you're confused, moon becomes blood. I have the moon blood sign. Okay, I have stars fall from heaven sign. So what happened to the stars? Why does he get rid of the stars? He gets rid of them. I have the sky rolls up like a scroll sign. And then I got every mountain and every island move sign. The mountain island sign. Once again, don't live on an island or a mountain. It'll be rough. And then men hide themselves and run in fear again. Whenever man runs from God in fear, back you go to the uh, Exodus 20. Now, I'll read that part. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Follow on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us from Jesus Christ, for the great day of his wrath has come. The great day has come. I bring that up because why? When you're in the Bible, when you're talking about days, you've got to know the difference between one day and the other day. And Peter is back we are now to Acts 2 from the, from the fact that we're dealing with the day. You see, Peter rises up after the four signs of Acts 2, which are the same as the four signs as Exodus 2, and the men begin to ask questions. He answers the first question. Peter does. and The first question being, whatever could this mean? That's the question Peter asks. And Peter, in a voice that the Holy Spirit of God... By the way, so you understand this. Lots of people don't understand this very simple thing. That's why I have to keep repeating it. The apostle stood up and everybody heard them in their born language what they had to say right and they talked about the wonderful works of God they explained what God's redemptive work was and who Christ is that he is God the Messiah and the and God are one and the same they explained that and then Peter gets up to explain acts 2 or I'm sorry Joel 2 he explains what could this mean and everyone hears him in their born language He gives a sermon, and everybody there hears Peter in their born language. That process, if you will, the thunderings, continues for quite a while. So, Peter, in a voice that the Holy Spirit of God transforms into many languages as it is being uttered, so that everyone present hears Peter in their own born language, they hear Peter recite Joel 2, which we should read again. So we're gone. Okay? But Peter says, again, verse 12, So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Peter rises up, and they hear Peter in their born language. And this is what Peter says. This is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. And he reads, or he recites Joel 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Aha! So what we have just witnessed has something to do with the last days. It will come apart in the last days. Not today. Not the day after this, when he did it. Not right now. Acts 2 is about when. Yeah, we're coming to the end, we're coming into the tribulational age, the last days. It, it shall come to pass in the last days, the tribulation, Joel 6, or Revelation 6, that I will pour out the sixth seal before the seventh seal, before the seven trumpets, that I will pour out my spirit before the 144,000. I'm sorry, right, yes. Right about the time of the 144,000. Do you see 144,000? There's a guy, and you know who he is. He came up with an incredible idea. He was going to convince people that he had 144,000. Did they fall for it? Yeah, they knock on your door. And, they, and he claimed, hey, we're in the tribulation, and you are the 144,000. Give me money. So how he did it. Was he Right. No. Did he have any idea about Exodus 20? No. Did he understand Joel 2? No. Did anybody in his congregation understand either of those? No. Did he understand Revelation 6? No. Did he know who the golden cappers were? No. Did he make money? Yeah. Did any of the followers of, that he, any of his proselytes, do any of them believe Jesus Christ is God? No. He made them all sons of hell. Because they're suckers. In the last days, says God. Not man, God says, in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In the last days you have to have a definition of, uh, of last days, and you have to have a definition of pour out my spirit. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You have to have a definition of all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Who is Joel talking to? Who is Peter talking to? Devout Jews in Jerusalem. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maid servants, or men servants, and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those last days. And then Tuesday. It isn't today. All over this country, we have people standing up saying that Joel 2, Acts 2, is happening right here in our church. Please give us money today. It isn't doing it. This isn't the last days. Anybody see the 144,000? No. Anybody see the four living creatures, hear the noise, see the lightning come out of the fire? Anybody see that? Anybody see the stars fall, the sky roll up, mountains, sun black, moon blood? See any of that? No. How do they get away with it? It's the old story. Bet on the stupidity of the average church and you will be rich. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. So there's fire and smoke again. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. There's your darkness and your moon sign right out of Revelation 6. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, there is your day again, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, whoever calls on the name of the Lord... That is Jesus Christ. So, note all of that. Get that down. So you have signs will come. Come and see the signs and the wonders in the last days. Wonders in heaven above, signs in earth below. Obvious questions about what are the signs, what are the meaning of these signs and the wonders. And surely you aren't thinking that they are happenstance, something that God just slaps together. He just doesn't pick these signs. Oh, I think I'll have an earthquake sign. Oh, what will we'll go with an earthquake sign like he's picking furniture? He doesn't do that. He has signs that mean things, that build one on the other, that tell a story. That's what he's doing. And they're not coincidental. What could these wonders and signs mean? The blood, the fire, the smoke, the sun black, the moon blood, the awesome day. Whoever calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. What is, what is he trying to say? Uh, all I want you to get today is you recognize the similarities between Joel 2 and Revelation 6. And eventually, as you keep studying the smoke and the fire references in Scripture, wherever they're found, here in Acts 2, Revelation 8, let me just give you that for fun. I'll give you Revelation 8.1. Just to make it go longer. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Go all the way down to five. Then the angel took the censer, oh, I'm sorry, to four, and the smoke of the incense, and then five. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire, so I got smoke and fire again, Revelation 8, from the altar, threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightness, lightning. lightning. And an earthquake. Here we go. Those are not happenstance signs. He's doing it on purpose. So as you study smoke and fire, Acts 2, Exodus 20, Genesis 15, Revelation 8, you're going to find yourself going back to Genesis 15, where this collision of love and justice, or mercy and holiness, or the collision of the omnipotent love of God and the omnipotent uh, justice of God, or resolve. That happens in Genesis 15. I just want you to see it keeps repeating. Exodus 20, Acts 2, Joel 2, Revelation 6, Revelation 8. Noises, thundering, smoke, fire, lightning, flashes. He keeps doing it. Okay? And you should notice as well that the seals are judgment. That's the ending of the sin, the coming of accountability. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. You see, God's goodness requires two things. One, that he provides mercy, and two, that he ends sin. His goodness requires that. I hope you understand that. He is not good if if sin is allowed to continue. He is not good if he does not provide mercy. His goodness requires that both be true. His love brings mercy, his holiness brings judgment. His goodness causes, if you want to put it that way, that would be wrong theologically, but if you will, that if that helps you, do it. His goodness causes uh, his love and his mercy and his, and his justice and his judgment. It is good that mercy is given. It is good that evil is ended. It's two parts of his goodness that, mo- that both must be present. Uh, I hope you get that. Let me try it this way. Mercy without justice is not good. And justice without mercy, not good. And he's good. That's the essence of the smoking furnace and the fire lamp of Genesis 15, as you all know. And of course, that answers the question of why these three times. First time, Exodus 20, second time, Exodus 2. Third time, Revelation 6, 7, and 8. The sixth, between the sixth seal and the trumpets, the judgments. The why three times question. Smoke, fire, thunderings, trumpets, or smoke, fire, languages, noises, or sound from heaven filling the house. Divided fire, languages, or smoke up, smoke of the incense, fire from the altar, thundering noises, lightning flashes. He does it those three times. And God has three things, if you will, that he wants to accomplish. Three things. And every time he accomplishes it, or is about to accomplish, you get this stuff. And so if you think that this stuff is happening now, then you have to conclude in great error that one of these three things is happening. Three things to accomplish. And we he accomplishes any of those three things, smoke, fire, trumpets, language. So what are the three things? Why these signs? What is the meaning of the black sun and the blood moon and the earthquakes and the falling stars, the rolling up sky, the moving mountains? What's going on here? What's the meaning? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh. He's going to pour out it. his meaning or his spirit on all flesh. Let's just take that for fun. Has he poured out his spirit on all flesh? What's that mean? I can look around. Some of you obviously are in real trouble. I'm kidding. But we know that he has not poured out. When he says, I'm pouring out my spirit on all flesh, what's he mean? That has to be resolved, doesn't it? Some will say that it is. Uh, it is, let me put a better question. Who is, who is all flesh in the context of Joel 2.28 and Acts 2? Or the better question. Who did the devout pilgrimage Jews think he was talking about when he said that? They thought they were, it was all, all flesh is all Israeli flesh or all Jewish flesh during the time of the tribulation. That's what they thought. Are they right? Anyway. God comes accompanied by His angelic host and His living creatures. And in Exodus 20, He lays out three things. And, And don't, don't just think that was something that you could have watched off to the side. You couldn't have watched it. I got living creatures. I got noise. I got all kinds of stuff. People ran. No one would watch that. They ran. They all heard it and they all saw it and they ran. And He lays out three things. He says first, I'm not going to write them down, but you need to know that there's three things he's doing. First thing that he's going to do. The creation is, he he announces that the creation is hopelessly fallen. The creatures, if you will, the created, if you will, the created beings with free will are hopelessly lost and dead. He does that at Exodus 20. And then he says, it's impossible for man to save himself. Impossible. There is no possible solution that man can come to, by himself, to the problem of free will, sin, and death. Man can't conceive it. Man can't initiate it. Man can't implement it. It's impossible for man or angel. That's what he says. That is the Reader's Digest version. That is what the Ten Commandments are all about. It's impossible for you to save yourself. Stop being, what's that word I want? Stupid. Stop it. He says it as clear as a bell that you cannot save yourself all the way through Scripture, but right here in Exodus twenty. And when he does it, he brings his thunder, his thunderings, his fire from lightning, his trumpet (coughs) excuse me. Uh and his smoke. That's the first thing of Exodus twenty. The smoke, if you will. He brings it that's what the smoke means. He brings the judgment statute, the standard, the penalty of death with regard to free will choices of rejecting him and choosing sin. Okay, the second thing is combined with the third thing. There are two. So there's three things, but that was the first thing. He presents the problem, if you will. Heard me say that a couple weeks ago. And he says that there is no solution that man or angel can ever do that will solve the problem. So he brings the problem. You're all going to die us. You can't save yourself. Now he has the second and the third thing, which is a combination. Okay, so I'm going to call them A and B. It's still three. The second thing is combined with the third thing. They are the two promises that God makes because he is good. So the first is outlining the problem, outlining it. The second one is the promises. He makes two promises that he will do. Because he's good. It's his goodness that causes him to make if you want to think that way, that's doctrinally incorrect, let me slip with that disclaimer for all you on the internet that throw things at me. But he makes two promises because of his goodness. Promise number one is what? He will save. He will. He can and he will solve the impossible problem. Genesis 15, Matthew 19:26, Hebrews 6:4, etc. He has a solution to free will, sin, and death, and He will implement it. It is impossible for man, but for God, it is not impossible. That's the that's the promise. The first promise is that He will solve it. He will provide a solution. He will save. He will have mercy. He will uh, give life. He has a solution. He tells you He does. To the problem. And then his goodness, his third thing, his second promise of the two promises is what? He will end what? He will end sin because his goodness requires that he do so. So that's what he's doing in Exodus twenty. He must end sin. He must. His goodness cannot allow sin to continue just as his love will not will allow sin for a time. Do you understand that? Let me repeat that. His goodness cannot allow sin to continue just as his love or his goodness will allow sin for a time. And there we got the aha. Here comes Jennifer and Peter. Time. Time now enters the room. God has created time for his purposes. We've got to ask, why did he create time? See, nobody ever really wants to talk about the why of time. We know the what of time. We see the reaction or the, or the, or the causes of time. But why? And then why, why did he put the three things inside of time? He puts them inside of time and he makes specific times for each one of them. He has specific times when he does this. Okay? He has specific times. Exodus 20, he outlies the problem and he gives the two promises. What does he do at Acts 2? He does this one. He tells you in Acts two, fifty days from the resurrection of Christ, that he has implemented the solution, doesn't he? First, he says, "Are oh, we out a problem? It's impossible for you." I make you a promise. I'm going to save. I'm going to end sin. Acts two, he saves. That's what he does. And he made sure that he did it on three specific times. Let me ask this question. Why are the three things in time, the specific times? Why are the are the specific times of the three things mutable? What do I mean by that? Could he have done the three things on a different time? Are the three things the, the times of the three things variable and constant, unsettled? Can, can he, can he reveal promise that he will save, that he has, that he will give life, that he has a solution? Can he do it on a different time than when he did it on? No, he can't. He has to do it on this time. Why, you must ask. I hope you do. Can he end sin on any other time but the time he will? No. He's omniscient God. We should not be surprised to find the four signs at the three day, at the three things. We find the four signs when the problem is presented officially, when the solution is performed physically, and when the end of sin begins. Notice how I said that. The beginning of the end of sin. Here's where it gets straight. How long does the beginning last? I have have the time for the ending of sin, which is the beginning of the end of sin. Now I need to know how long the beginning lasts. What else do I have at Acts 2? I have a beginning at Acts 2. How long does the beginning last at Acts 2? I have a beginning, if you will, at Exodus 20. How long does the beginning last? Some people want the beginning to keep lasting. They like the beginning to be forever, if that makes sense. It probably won't. Knowing how long beginnings last is very important. Okay? Next week, golden cappers, black sun, black blood moon, and as much as I can do to get away from Acts 2. Hopefully I'll end it. Let's rise. Be dismissed.